The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. Today we're going to be reading from Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. Give everybody a second to get there. Again, it's Hebrews 11, 8 through 16. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him in the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. This is the word of God. Good morning. I give this reminder just occasionally. Um, We live in a, a cell phone age and I, I can be as addicted to that as the rest of you. So I just want to remind you, you know, if you're using your phone to read scripture or to take notes, that's great. Just uh, put it on airplane mode so you're not tempted to be distracted. Um, let's pray. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler. Lord, um, that, that's our prayer. We want you to be our vision. We want you to be the one we live for. There's so much going on in our lives, so many um, pressures, relationship troubles, financial troubles, sicknesses. And God, the, the enemy of our souls and even our, our sinful flesh would be tell us this morning that whatever we're going to hear now, it's not really going to change anything. It's not really all that relevant. These are just sort of intellectual exercises. And God, I pray that you would dispel that lie. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would draw our hearts and our minds into these words. You would show us that your word makes all the difference. That you would help us to live in this reality be more sure of it than of the things that we see and feel every day. So I ask for your help now. We all ask for your help now. In the name of Jesus, for his glory. Amen. You know, following Christ is kind of a crazy thing. Like It it actually limits your decision making. Have you found that? Because you're not really free anymore to use self-interest as the ultimate benchmark. 
And being a Christian makes you weird to people around you. You don't share the same goals or priorities or lifestyles anymore. It closes doors because some circles just aren't going to be comfortable with a Christian existing in their sphere of influence, even if you're doing really excellent work. If we're faithful, the Christian way of life can be a lonely and awkward and scary path of hardship that others would just consider foolish or unnecessary. Do you ever have thoughts like that? Like, in some ways, life would be so much easier if I weren't a Christian. You know, it's impossible to go down a hard road unless you are utterly convinced of where you're going and and your desire to be there and your ability to get there. In 1688, uh, the preacher John Bunyan. He was imprisoned for his faith, and while he was in prison, he wrote a Christian allegory called The Pilgrim's Progress. It would become one of the most widely published books of all time, and in it, the main character, named Christian, endures an arduous pilgrimage from the place of his birth, the city of destruction, which is ruled by the prince of this world. He journeys to the celestial city, the city of the king, And he left home after hearing some good news from the king, sent from the king. And Christian believed, and he set off on his journey, leaving his friends and his family behind. And on the journey, he encounters violent enemies, deceivers, traps, wild animals, weariness, injury, great personal loss. He would have to fight for truth. He would have to remember life-saving wisdom and, and pass through the evil city of Vanity Fair and also the dark valley of the shadow of death. Now, at a crucial time in his journey, Christian came to a house with the name Beautiful, house, the house Beautiful. It was a station of rest, and it was also a place where he could be further equipped for the trials that were still in front of him. And so before he left that place, the servants of the king who worked in the house Beautiful, they urged him to wait long enough to climb up on top of a, a nearby mountain from where he could actually catch a glimpse of the faraway celestial city. And he did that. And that experience of seeing the city ever so faintly in the distance, that would prove essential in keeping Christian from giving up and getting him all the way to his new and his glorious home. And you know that that sort of experience is actually what we all need. Our series in the book of Hebrews is all about how Jesus is better. And today we're going to see that Jesus leads us by faith to a better city. Faith journeys to a better city. And we'll start with Abraham's own departure after receiving God's word. Verse 8, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Now, with the introduction of Abraham, the author definitely would have had the attention of the audience of of Jewish Christians to whom he was writing, because Abraham was a big deal, and rightfully so. The Apostle Paul refers to him as the father of faith, and in James chapter 2, Abraham is called the friend of God. So it was all about being a descendant of Abraham in, in those days. The Jewish leaders, they rejected Jesus in part because they were so smug in their own identity as Abraham's physical offspring. And so Jesus challenged them by saying, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did, not trying to kill me. Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, here in Hebrews 11, you 
can look on Abraham as your ancestor too because Jesus was Abraham's true offspring. And so we who are adopted into Christ through faith, we are counted in that same family line. So Galatians 3 says that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So let's learn from Abraham's experience this morning. Let's see how he pleased God by trusting him. At the beginning of his life, Abraham lived in a thriving city called Ur in the realm of Chaldea that would one day become Babylon. And we have no indication that he wasn't living for just the same things that everyone else was. Joshua 24 says that Abraham and his father and his brother, quote, lived beyond the Euphrates and they served other gods. Well then, in Genesis 12, we read that God spoke to Abraham and said, go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he's given great promises but to enjoy them Abraham was called to break with his past and to rely on the word of God. Nothing more. It's kind of like you and me. The life of faith begins with God's revelation of himself. So just like Noah responded when he was warned, and Abraham responded when he was called, so also great promises are held out to us through God's holy word. But often we must break with the things that we live for before and rely only on the word of God to get us to the fulfillment of the promise. Throughout Hebrews, we see that faith is awakened in God's people when God speaks to them through his word and faith then readily responds to what God has revealed. So that means that what you do with this book is of the utmost importance. You thoroughly know what it says. Don't reject this word as did the wilderness generation that we read about in Hebrews 3 and 4. Instead, ask God for the ability to respond in faith and obedience, whether it's to the preached word or, or to your studies of the Bible for yourself. Respond in faith. Scripture makes a big deal in thinking about faith of Abraham's departure from his homeland because it's the start of God's plan of redemption. It's, uh, he's taking one family of the earth, and then he's working eventually through one descendant in that family to then bring blessing to all peoples of the earth. So this wasn't a purposeless journey. And we may think like, okay, moving from the civilization he knew to a place he doesn't know, so what? Like people move cross country all the time, not really a big deal. Yeah, they do now, but you know, put yourself in the ancient Near East in 2000 BC. It's not a safe place. Travel was dangerous. There weren't good roads. There wasn't a consistent rule of law. There were marauders, warlords. So, so the way to stay safe was really to stay close to your tight-knit community. And Abraham just disregards that. He was taking a great risk. And he was leaving not just for a, a, you know, a temporary trip. He, he was leaving forever. He couldn't just Zoom call friends back home. He couldn't go back for a visit. His life would never be the same. And, you know, really, his life would never be safe or predictable. And I wonder if there's a life that you've been called away from this morning. Maybe you're having a hard time saying goodbye to it. Are you trying to travel to Canaan while keeping one foot in Ur of the Chaldeans? 
If you are, that's, I'm sorry, because that's the height of misery. Because you won't be able to really enjoy those pleasures that, that you're missing, those familiar things that you don't want to leave behind. You won't be able to enjoy them. And you won't be able to have joy in pursuing the inheritance that God has for you in the new life. So you'll just have a plagued conscience. You'll just be stuck in the middle. And in the end, you might end up scrapping it all and going back to where you started in the beginning. But Abraham showed us that the life of faith is the, the life that follows God decisively away from life in the land that serves other gods. It trusts the good promises of God more than the known comforts that define the lives of other people. But how do you really know where you're living? How do you know if you have a foot in, in both worlds or, or both feet in one world or the other? As we mentioned last week, your fears are a really good clue. There's a glorious freedom that's exhibited by Abraham. He didn't know, need to know the future. But the minute you emphasize your life and, and, and the things you own and the things that might happen to you, well, suddenly you're going to become feverishly anxious to know what's coming and, and you'll have anxiety about potentially losing the things that you actually were already called to let go of. And that anxiety will then lead to an impatience with God, an impatience with the journey that he has you on, and then you'll be strongly tempted to just keep living in and for that, that familiar world, even if you keep going to church and keep calling yourself a Christian. God knows where you really live, and he's called you away from those things that you struggle and worry for. It says Abraham didn't even know where he was going. It must have been confusing at times. And the decision was a great cost to himself. It must have felt like a great cost to his whole household. Can you imagine this sort of second guessing that he might have experienced from those with him? Christian life can feel like that sometimes. But Abraham was faithful in the present because of his confidence in the future. If we don't have that confidence in the future, then we always end up right back at a lifestyle that says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But faith in this God gave Abraham a fuller purpose. He didn't know where he was going. He only knew with whom he went. Others might not understand, but Abraham knew. He knew for a fact that he had experienced God. And can you imagine anything more thrilling than the fact that God has concern for you and that he wants you to journey with him through this life and, and even further on after that? God's companionship, that's what changes everything. A person who has the companionship of God is like someone who we can describe as, um, as having nothing yet possessing everything. That's how the Apostle Paul puts it. And this is why Jesus said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now maybe you've had glimpses of, of this sort of lifestyle, the, the Abrahamic faith journey uh, maybe as you first glimpsed the promises of God, when you first came to faith, it did give you courage to make some fundamental changes in your life. And I want you to remember those departures. They weren't easy at the time. But now, when you think about them, they're the cause for celebration, aren't they? That was faith at work in your life. But all of us have a lot more miles we need to put between the land where we naturally existed and the new place to which God is calling us. So let's commit right now to, to shut the door to our house in Ur of Chaldea. Let's put one foot in front of the other. Let's hop on the camel or, or the cart and just ride right out of town with God's companionship.
Verse 9 continues the narrative and says, By faith he, Abraham, went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. So it's one thing to leave the place you knew. It's another thing to never really have a place to settle after that for the rest of your life. Acts 7 stresses that God, quote, gave Abraham no inheritance in the land, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. Well, te- technically, Abraham did have one small plot of land. He bought it to a cave to bury his wife, Sarah, after she died. But even when he was negotiating for that little plot of land, it, it still served to stress his, emphasis, his, um, his status as a foreigner. He admits to the Hittites, I'm a sojourner and a foreigner among you. And then two generations later with his grandson Jacob, we still read that Jacob's calling himself a sojourner. So Abraham kept living as a foreigner in the land of promise. As, you know, personally, I've lived in five different countries and I can tell you that people who are merely residents, they do not enjoy the same status as actual citizens, okay? The paperwork is purposely perplexing. The fees are elevated. Behind the kindness, there's always a level of distrust. So you may have what you need to get by logistically, but it still doesn't feel like home. Abraham looked closely at the land of promise. God reiterated the promise and and had him look all over the land. He said, all that you see I will give to your offspring as a possession forever. But the actual possession of it wasn't yet. It was only seen by faith. In the context of Genesis, Abraham and Sarah are just out in the middle of nowhere with a bunch of sheep. And then in Genesis, we see at least nine times Abraham, Isaac, Jacob are are moving tents. There's a lot of description of their nomad life in those later chapters. Does your Christian life ever feel like you're in the middle of nowhere? When you make the big departure from the old life, you kind of expect, well, I'm going to end up somewhere that's going to be really nice. It's going to feel good. But what if it doesn't come right away? What if you always feel unsettled in this world because you've sought to do things God's way? And then you're tempted to wonder, was it all a mistake? In fact, I think you should feel unsettled in that way. I think that's a good sign. Those gut check moments come but then we still obey because we believe God's word. By faith, you can refuse to be at home in this world because you see the purpose and the meaning in living, more, living for more than just the, the fleeting pleasure and the temporary security of this world. Verse 10 tells us that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. When you think about foundations, that it kind of implies permanence, right? A permanent structure. Clearly, Abraham's tents didn't have a foundation. But the desire for permanence, I think it haunts all of us. We all long to have our own place. We all long to be known in our own place, right? Abraham didn't have that. And secular history doesn't know Abraham for anyone. He wasn't a powerful ruler or a brilliant entertainer. He wasn't a military leader. He wasn't even a heinous criminal. He was just, he's not known in secular history. And the world won't care about you either. I don't mean to say that there aren't notable Christians, but there aren't very many 
because Christians simply don't have the luxury of seeking notoriety, right? In some ways, the call to follow Christ is a call to embrace obscurity. But this isn't because we don't have a place of permanence. It's because that place of permanence is still being prepared. We are citizens of it now. It was essential that we left our old country when we did because the journey is going to take us a lifetime. And on the road, we, we're going to run into other pilgrims. We're going to run into caravans of other, of other sojourners. And, and that, that's what this morning is, actually. And we can set up a campfire and we can feel a, a great little foretaste of the belonging that one day we'll, we will fully enjoy. But until then, we keep moving keep moving as a group, we keep moving as individuals by looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Colossians 3 says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. So are you looking forward or are you looking backward? If you're looking backward, then the the actual thought of growing as a Christian, that's going to be hard to bear. And you're going to be impatient when it, it seems like God is requiring too much of you, too much uncertainty. You may grow resentful toward God. And your whole life is going to be dominated by like a bitter longing to recreate what once was because that was the only good that you've known. And so you'll demand to put down roots, whether that means the family you don't have, the home you don't have, the lifestyle you don't have, the security you don't have, the success you don't have. Instead of walking by faith in the wilderness, there are many times when, frankly, you would just give anything to have what others seem to enjoy so easily? Would you be content with some nice relationships, some earthly success, some health and wealth, good kids, a beautiful house? If so, I worry that you haven't left Ur of the Chaldeans. Stop and ask God if that's true of you. And then ask for him to reveal what it is that you need to leave behind. Let's keep moving and consider another expression of faith connected to Abraham. By faith, his wife, Sarah, herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. The language of stars and and grains of sand, that's straight out of what God promised to Abraham with his... um, many offspring as the father of nations. Now, Scripture is full of stories of women who were barren, and then God gave life in the end. Have you noticed that? There's a a chain of those stories in Scripture. And that's because it's one long prophecy for how God would bring new spiritual life out of a barren Israel and how he would miraculously generate a people out of a Messiah who had been cut off and killed. Now, Sarah was 65 years old when God promised to her that that he would make of Abraham a great nation. And at 65, I mean, she would have been crazy to to actually think that that's natural, right? Uh, Even for someone who had given birth before, which Sarah hadn't. Um, 
Ironically, Abram's name meant father of many. Ouch. The, the couple's childlessness would have been a constant source of humiliation in that culture. Probably Sarah had given up praying for a child long before, but after God's promise, her prayers likely would have started again, even if just as a whimsical thought. I mentioned last week that the, the figures in this chapter, they're not heroes who are worthy of worship, right? They're just examples of what faith means, examples of what God can do in and through his people who trust him. So these individuals have a lot of flaws, and that should actually comfort us. Sarah and Abraham, yeah, they, they believed that God was going to give offspring, but they definitely took matters into their own hands. Ten years after the promise, so at this point Sarah is 75, she says to Abraham something like, hey, let's get real, Abraham. If this is going to happen, we're going to have to be creative. So she told Abraham to take her female servant Hagar as a second wife and to raise up offspring through her. And Abram bought into this scheme. And let's just say that it caused a lot of pain and confusion over the long haul. And then when God repeated the promise, no, no it's, it's actually through Sarah that, that he, was, he would give Abraham offspring. Still, neither Abraham nor Sarah were doubt-free. Okay, both of them laughed at the prospect. Abraham laughs in Genesis chapter 17. Sarah laughs in chapter 18. And yet, their legacy is still one of faith because there was also faith. So I hope that these examples help us to see that it's the presence of faith at all. It's not reaching a specific quantity of faith that determines the day. Jesus told his disciples, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, You'll say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it'll move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And Abraham and Sarah did have a mustard seed of faith, and God fulfilled the promise when Sarah was 90. She considered that the one who had promised is faithful. And that's the, the essence of saving faith. Now, we've all done some laughing at God's promises, haven't we? Doubting God, we, we also tried to creatively manipulate situations to work out our own answers to prayers. Sometimes our grasping for what we don't have isn't so much because we're refusing to, to, to leave the place that he's called us out of. It could be grasping for the good thing that he has actually promised to give us, but he hasn't brought it about yet. But faith learns to wait on the Lord. When we feel empty, when we feel undone, we don't, we don't just scramble to try to fix things. We consider the one who has promised that he is faithful. So stop trying to force the answer to your own prayers. Now there's plenty for us to do in the life of faith, right? Many of the things God wants to bring about will happen through our faith-filled actions. So how will you know if whether you're simply acting in obedience or if you're frantically trying to keep God's promises for him? Probably the level of anxiety in our hearts is a good litmus test. Believe me, I, I can keep up with the worst of you in levels of anxiety. And it's at those times that I need to bring God back into the equation and consider that the one who has promised is faithful. And this we can do by faith. 
Verse 13 turns a corner. It says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is kind of an aside that stops in our, our stories, and it, it wants to help us make sure that we're understanding the point of all of these vignettes that, that are being shared in chapter 11. So verse 13 kind of just takes us back all the way to Abel and includes him and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. But I think also in view is the people who will be talked about later in the chapter. They all submitted their lives to God. Not a piece of it, but the whole. And through doing that, they acknowledged, just as Abraham and Jacob did with their mouths, that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Well, Abraham, he had acknowledged that he was a stranger and exile in the land. We talked about that. But how do we get from that to strangers and exiles on the earth? This is something cool that, that doesn't come across the clearest in English. But in both Hebrew and in Greek, so in both your Old Testament and your New Testament, the same word can mean both land or earth. It's only context that, that decides which meaning applies. But when you look at the trajectory of the Bible, it's kind of both. So Abraham and his descendants were promised a, a very specific land in a corner of the Middle East. And yet in Romans 4, we read that the promise to Abraham and his offspring was, would be that he would inherit the world. Where's that in the Old Testament? Well, it's in the very passages that call him heir of the land. See, Abraham's experience of sojourning in the land, it's the type, it's, it's, it's the situational prophecy for how his offspring, us, would be sojourners in the world on our way to the eternal promised land. Even though it was a physical homeland his descendants would be given, the greater story of journeying to the new heavens and new earth was being acted out through those wanderings in Canaan. So both were true for Abraham. And the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle Peter wrote to us in his first epistle, and he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So for Peter, the fact that we're just passing through this world becomes grounds then for not living according to what just feels good. And then Jesus also tells us not to focus on hoarding treasures here on earth. Instead, our first priority should be making investments in heavenly treasure because that's our home. I can see an objection here. Are you saying... Scott, that this life doesn't matter. No. It's not wrong to save and invest money. It's not wrong to beautify the place where you live, to have nice things, to aim for career goals, or to simply have fun and enjoy yourself. But is that the main theme of your life? Do those pursuits dampen your ability to wholeheartedly invest in eternal things? If so, that's not passing through this world. That's building your own foundations, and that will end in great loss and even ruin. As the old adage says, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Now, the Greek term for stranger or foreigner that's used in verse 14, it's actually a pejorative term that, that Abraham, that's just used to describe Abraham. It's an insult um, it's, it's like when children in the Chinese countryside would stare and point at me and say, la why, la why, and it's, you know, you don't even have to know the language to know that, 
okay, their only use with that guy is uh, they're, they're having fun gawking at him, right? So, um, and if you're unfamiliar with the term sojourner, well, that's, that's just someone passing through. You can have a temporary housing in the area for a long time. You could live in a hotel, but, but not with an actual home. So, with, with the sort of derogative tone there and the, the very um, flimsy feel to this identity, there's a latent expectation that this thing called following Christ, it will often not feel comfortable. Now, he will sustain you. You'll have everything you need for your sojourning, but don't expect to receive the fullness of the promises right now. So let's just check our expectations. Are you okay with being a stranger and an exile in this world? Because there is a way that many call Christian, but it's not the same as what we're reading here. And instead, those pseudo-Christian messengers, they, they paint the faith as a means to success. So in that paradigm, one becomes a Christian in order to do better at work, in order to become a better husband or wife, or to live with less stress, or to lose weight, or to, to gain friends, or to have a means of kicking addiction, to live one's best life now. Now, one or more of those things may happen to you. I hope it does because you follow Christ. It does reorient your priorities. It does clear away some obstacles in your life. But if becoming established and healthy in this world is your ultimate end goal, you're simply not going to be faithful when adversity and testing and suffering come along, which they will because the road to glory is in the footsteps of our leader, the suffering servant, Jesus he was the stranger and the exile on this earth par excellence. So are you signing on to the journey to his kingdom? Or are you using him to establish your own kingdom? The text continues. For people who speak thus make clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. To make a pilgrimage at all, you, you have to leave the prior home. And, uh, but if the patriarchs had kept looking back, then they, they wouldn't have maintained their faith until death. In Genesis 30, Abraham actually tells his descendants, he explicitly prohibits them from going back to the land that he started in. So can we talk about how they refused the opportunity to return home? That, that possibility of returning home, that's exactly what the book of Hebrews has been warning us about. Those who shrink back and are destroyed. And one of the most memorable pictures of that shrinking back is in Genesis 19, Lot's wife. As her family was rescued out of the wicked city Sodom, the angels specifically told them, whatever you do, don't look back. But tragically, Lot's wife, she was grieving for the life that they had to leave behind. And so she does look back. And she's instantly frozen into a pillar of salt. Now, when he applied this story, then Jesus, in the, in the Gospel of Luke, he says simply, Remember Lot's wife. That's a verse that we should memorize. That's a verse we can have on a, on a banner downstairs. Remember Lot's wife. Um... And then Jesus follows it up by saying, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. 
So if you can't bear that God is leading you away from comfort in Sodom, that's not going to result in you keeping anything in the long run. In Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul speaks about the Lot's wives in his day. He says, Many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their appetite. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And then there's a particularly painful case of, of one who returned to the city of destruction. In 2 Timothy 4, Paul writes that his close co-worker Demas had abandoned him because he was in love with this present world. So how do we make sure that we don't end up like the Demases and the Lot's wives and the Israelites in the wilderness who are controlled by their cravings? What makes people leave the old allegiances decisively and for good? They have to be headed somewhere that's dear to their hearts. They have to actually be seeking a homeland and desiring a better country. And what does it look like to have that longing? It's not that you become a weird hermit. You can enjoy the good things of this world, but, but you can also take them or leave them. It's, it's not the main point. Your priorities clearly point to something quite different, which everyone can see. And will you ever regret living for God's country and living like a stranger in this world? As a case study, Richard Phillips recounts the deaths of two prominent men in the year 1899. The first man was Colonel Robert G. Ingersoll, for whom the Ingersoll Lectures at Harvard University are named. And he gave his brilliant mind to, the ref to refuting the Christian faith. And he was loved for it. He was extremely popular. But Ingersoll died suddenly that year, leaving his unprepared family utterly devastated. So grief-stricken was his wife that she would not allow his body to be taken from their home until the health of the family required its removal. His remains were then cremated, and his funeral service was such a scene of dismay that even the newspapers of the day commented upon the palpable despair. Death came to this man, and there was no hope, but only an irredeemable tragedy. The other man who died that year was Dwight L. Moody, the great Chicago-based evangelist. His family had gathered around his bed on his last morning, his son heard him exclaim, Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. You're dreaming, Father, said his son. But Moody replied, No, Will, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. Moody seemed to revive, but then started to slip away again. Is this death, he was heard to say? This is not bad. There's no valley this is bliss. This is glorious. His daughter now had come, and she began to pray for him to recover. No, no, Emma, he said. Don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. And then he died, and his funeral was a scene of triumph and joy, with crowds singing about how death had lost its sting. He had been looking forward to it. 
And for all who live with this longing, verse 16 concludes, Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And this language of of not being ashamed should immediately remind us of chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, which said that because Jesus took on human flesh, just like ours, he is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. And that is a very good thing. We go through Jesus to get to the Father. And because Jesus was not ashamed to be called our brother all the way to the cross, therefore now the Father is not ashamed to be called our God. And this statement, as as a conclusion, reminds us that faith isn't some impersonal force that we just conjure up within ourselves. No, it's, it's, it's not trusting in the power of our own belief The faith that saves is simply the byproduct of relationship with God. It it trusts the God that we've come to know and love. It considers him faithful in everything that he's promised. So when thinking about those faithful ones in history who have longed for the city of God, why does that make God unashamed of them? Because ultimately their ability to wait by faith for home in that city That's an expression of their great love for him. He himself is at the center of what that city means, of what that city provides. Likely John Bunyan's inspiration for um, Christian's mountain climb to see the city, the celestial city, probably his inspiration was the book of Revelation, where the apostle John records that the spirit took him away to a great high mountain, and he was shown the better city. And in Revelation 21, he reports what he saw with majestic comparisons and and, and symbolic descriptions of its glory. And it's the city of peace and security and healing and wisdom and joyful community and lasting purpose. And we read that the city has no need of a sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God is its light. You long for the glory of God to be your light. You long for God to be at the center of your existence, to dwell among his people. I don't know what the exact temptation is for you to shrink back or, you know, maybe you don't see it as shrinking back. Maybe it looks more like um, like building a condo just on the, the edge of the city of destruction. Maybe it's that you can't seem to, to leave behind the comforts or the pleasures, maybe the pleasures that numb the pain. Maybe you don't want to leave behind perceived opportunities or the affirmation of other people, but it won't work have one foot in both worlds. That's not the life of faith that God commends in the end. I'll end by quoting the the great London preacher from last century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he, he summarizes by saying, we too are men and women who have seen what this world is. We no longer want it. We no longer live for it. We are looking for a city that has foundations. We are looking for the city of God. We are looking for that better land. Our eye is upon the glory that's coming. They, in these verses, confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We must do the same. We cannot be Christians and worldlings at the same time. Because they were not ashamed of God, God was not ashamed to be called their God. May the same be true of us. Let's ask for his help. Our good God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would 
put his finger on any area in which we are not leaving Ur of the Chaldeans. We ask for greater grace to cut off the old ties, to have our hopes fixed on the grace that will be revealed to us in the coming of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that in our failings, which we all have, we are not condemned. We thank you that like Abraham and Sarah, we can, we can mess up quite a bit, but the question is, do we have faith? What is it at the center of our life, even if it's just a grain of mustard seed? If it's there, then that's enough. And we can, you can, you can cleanse the rest away, God. But um, we ask for greater faith. We ask, God, that... Um, give us eternal perspective and Lord we, we want to thank you for Jesus because he was not ashamed of us because he claimed us as his own and went to the cross therefore we can live this life by his spirit we can be accepted by grace through faith and you are not ashamed to be our God so we delight in that gift God we delight in that gift now as as we turn to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We ask that you would meet us there as well. In Jesus' name, amen.